1990, former Will County Sheriff's Deputy Robin Abrams was gearing up to testify in a lawsuit she had filed against her former employer, which included the local county sheriff and several other officers within the department, including a former boyfriend. The lawsuit was the result of a year of harassment, where Robin had been subjected to over 100 allegedly false complaints and multiple baseless arrests. Eighteen days before the first hearing in the case, Robin would pass her father on the road, waving as she went by. This is the last time her family would ever see her. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 17, The Disappearance of Robin Abrams, Part 1. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. Also, before we begin, if you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. If you're not looking for perks, but want to just help out maybe one time, I am also on Venmo at MidwestPod. I'm currently sitting at one patron, so I would like to thank Zane for his help. Now, on to today's case. We currently live in a divisive time in American history. When it comes to law enforcement in this country, there has always been a divide between those who fully support law enforcement and those who have chosen to be slightly more critical of such institutions and the amount of power they should be allowed to wield. In the last several years, with a multitude of highly publicized and controversial police shootings, as well as more and more controversial video bringing the aggressiveness of non-fatal police altercations into question, harder lines have began to be drawn. Well, I'm sure that out in the real world, thoughts are still a little more in the middle. From a social media perspective, a very hard line has been drawn in the sand between back-the-blue purists and those who have pushed back hard with the defund the police movement. Out of this has sprung a major conversation on the idea of the Blue Wall of Silence, also known as the Blue Code or the Blue Shield, depending on who you're talking to. The idea is that there is an informal code of silence among law enforcement not to report on a colleague's errors, misconducts, or crimes. Claims of this code are generally backed up with a list of former law enforcement officers who were relieved of duty after turning their colleagues in for various wrongdoings. I bring this up because the disappearance we're going to talk about here took place during a period of a stark contrast to everything happening now. While there was still, obviously, national news, it wasn't in your face on social media like it is now. Police corruption cases were only really known about to those who lived in the occurring city and those who kept an eye on national news. There was still that divide I talked about earlier, but cops, especially over-the-top, over-aggressive, and wild-card types portrayed by the likes of Mel Gibson, Sylvester Stallone, and Steven Seagal, were being glorified in the action movies of the time. While entertaining, as I own many movies of the sort, it was a clear look into what we may have thought cops should have been like at the time even though such antics would never be allowed in reality. There was also that code of silence. And in today's case, depending on your take, may be one of its biggest examples. Because it'll beg the question, who does the code stop and start with? 
What does it mean when a volunteer sheriff's deputy is terrorizing a full-fledged deputy, still in her probation period, a woman who is dedicating herself to the badge, and the higher-ups side with him? And lastly, is the code worth silencing one of your own? Before we go any further, today's narrative is going to be a little funky. This is one of those cases where a simple Google search won't reveal much. I put this together through news articles, documents made available via the Help Find Robin Abrams Facebook page, and two interviews from the Unfound podcast featuring Robin's sister, Jody Walsh, and Steve Knickram, a former Will County investigator. And I did not exactly find those sources in that order. Essentially, this first episode, I'm going to start with what was known that I was able to put together through court documents and news articles, which is all that pretty much anyone knew for years. And in the next episode, we'll backtrack and divulge what Jody and Steve said in their interviews. In Jody's case, she didn't know much of it until many years later. I would highly recommend listening to those interviews once I've completed this series. Now, on to the disappearance of Robin Abrams. Robin Renee Abrams was born August 13, 1962, to Donald and Barbara Abrams. Robin was the youngest of four sisters. Robin's sister Jody would describe Robin as a child who loved to explore and could generally be found hanging around the pool. The family would initially reside in Orlando Park, Illinois, where Donald Abrams worked as a bricklayer as well as a part-time police officer for Orland Park. Upon graduating from Sandburg High School, Robin would be the first of her family to attend college, first attaining an associate's degree from Moraine Valley Community College and then completing her education at Governor State University in University Park, Illinois. It's unclear what Robin majored in, but according to her sister Jody, she aspired to be a lawyer and was also passionate about helping abused women. Sometime during Robin's time in college, the family would relocate 35 miles southeast to Beecher, located in Will County, Illinois. While unfortunately never getting the opportunity to try her hand at law in the courtroom, she would eventually find herself drawn to a different corner of the law world. Police work. While attending college, Robin had to pay her way through. She did this solely by working at McDonald's. At some point during her time working there, Tony Marquez, who worked as an auxiliary deputy for the Will County Sheriff's Office, began frequenting the Frankfurt, Illinois, McDonald's, where Robin worked. The two struck up a good rapport with each other, and Marquez would eventually convince Robin to join the Auxiliary Sheriff's Department. I should take time to note that in terms of Will County at the time, an auxiliary officer is essentially a non-paid volunteer officer that served mainly as a backup for full-time deputies, as well as working events such as fairs. In August of 1986, Robin would be hired on as an auxiliary deputy, and the following year, in 1987, Tony Marquez would become the president of the Auxiliary Sheriff's Department. During her time on the Auxiliary Force, Robin would prove to be an effective officer with a good handle on the job. Deciding that she wanted to go further than just volunteering her time, Robin was hired by the Sheriff's Office in January of 1988 and was selected to attend the Police Training Institute in Springfield, Illinois. She would graduate the following March. In May of 1988, Robin would begin a relationship with Tony Marquez. Marquez, at the time, was 20 years Robin's senior, with him being 45 and Robin being 25. Marquez was also married, 
a fact that was unknown to Robin, as he had told her he was divorced. In October of 1988, Robin would learn of Marquez's deception, and an argument would ensue. That would end the relationship and would result in Abrams being struck by Marquez on the face. The bruising from the hit would not go unnoticed, and superior officers would express their concern to Robin the following week. Robin would at first try to avoid the issue, but upon further pressing, she informed Marquez that her superior officers wished to speak with him, at which point he made contact. Marquez advised that during an argument between the two, Robin had fallen, and it was during that she gained the bruises present. Because that's not the oldest story in the book, by any means. During this conversation, Marquez would advise that Robin was mentally unstable, and that she was unable to properly handle the ending of their relationship. Marquez, despite not being a full-time officer, was still a veteran auxiliary officer, and with being friends with a number of high-ranking individuals within the sheriff's office, including then-sheriff John Johnson, he was taken more seriously and believed over Robin. This would result in an order for Robin to avoid any contact with Tony Marquez, except for on a professional level, and that she was to partake in a psychological evaluation to check her mental health. In a letter dated October 21st, 1988, addressed to Chief Deputy Raymond Van Dyke, a clinical psychologist would report that he administered the Clinical Analysis Questionnaire and the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory, which are both psychological tests, and both found that Robin, while a bit more emotional than usual, was more than sufficiently capable of performing her duties as a sheriff's deputy without any cause for concern. What would then follow is a series of harassments perpetrated by both Tony Marquez as well as members of the Will County Sheriff's Office, including a slew of accusations against Robin, as well as a few arrests. First thing I want to note is that sometime shortly after Robin's psychological evaluation and her order to not speak to Tony Marquez, the two must have spoken in a non-professional manner in some sort of fashion, as an inter-office communication from Deputy Chief Robert Brown to Robin Abrams, dated November 2nd, 1988, stated that Robin was to be in Chief Brown's office on November 3rd to discuss her direct disobedience to the order to not have communication with Tony Marquez. A month and a half later, on December 16th, 1988, Robin was leaving a dry cleaner in Joliet, Illinois, when she was stopped by two local Joliet police officers in the parking lot. While speaking to those officers, several officers from Will County arrived. At this time, Robin was taken into custody by Will County Deputy Anthony Lucenti and placed in his squad car. While Robin sat in the car, Tony Marquez arrived and explained to Deputy Lucenti that Robin had been hiding in the office building where Marquez maintained an insurance business. She was then transported to the sheriff's office, where she was instructed by Deputy Chief Brown to write down everything she had done that day. After being detained for approximately four hours, Robin was then taken back to her car without charges filed. I need to mention here, there are several mugshots from an arrest of Robin at Will County taken in her deputy uniform, which I will put up on social media. It's never been made explicitly clear that the mugshot is from this instance, however, there isn't any other specific record, either public or told from Robin's sister, that point to another specific time for her being arrested while working for Will County, which she did not work for them much longer at all after this incident. On December 21st, 1988, 
Robin Abrams was released from the Will County Sheriff's Office. On December 21st, 1988, Robin Abrams was released from her duties at the Will County Sheriff's Office. At the time, she was still in a probationary period, and in the official letter signed by Sheriff John Johnson, it specified that she, quote, failed to meet the expectations of a member of this department. Oddly enough, a memo from Robin's training officer dated December 3rd, 1988, states that he believed Robin would make a, quote, good police officer. In March of 1989, Tony Marquez allegedly beat on the door of Barbara Abrams, Robin's mother, brand new van while Robin and Barbara were in the vehicle. A police report taken by Will County Sergeant Thomas Carey on 3-21-89 from Tony Marquez alleges that Robin spent the whole day following Marquez in her car before getting her vehicle extremely close to his and blinding him with her headlights, supposedly right in front of the sheriff's office. According to a letter to her lawyer and court documents, on April 6, 1989, Robin was arrested at her apartment in Joliet by Will County deputies. Robin states that upon opening the door, the officers had their guns drawn and claimed to have a warrant. The charge was harassment by telephone towards Tony Marquez. Robin, however, cites her landlady as a witness and notes that said landlady called the sheriff's office to report that officers were causing an unnecessary scene at her building and were using unnecessary force. A court document notes that on May 15, 1989, Robin was arrested for disorderly conduct by Joliet police and that Robin had been hiding with a gun inside of Marquez's office. She was released without charges. According to court documents and a letter from Robin to her lawyer, on August 27, 1989, Robin was pulled over for supposedly reckless driving and arrested by Auxiliary Deputy Charles Masika. She was then transported to the Will County Sheriff's Office, where she was subjected to a visual strip search and made to wear a jail jumpsuit. She was then placed in a felony holding cell with 10 male inmates for several hours at the instruction of Sergeant Thomas Carey, despite him knowing that reckless driving was merely a Class B misdemeanor. According to a Joliet police report dated September 1st, 1989, Robin was once again arrested by Joliet police on a report of, quote, person bothering me and violation of a no-contact order. The call was made after Tony Marquez spotted Robin in the same area he was, and he also ascertained that Robin had threatened him earlier in the day. It's noted in the report that the officers were shown a document by Marquez stating, that there was a no-contact order, but it's also noted the officer was not familiar with such a document and saw it quickly. After being taken to the station, and after further investigation, Robin was released after it was determined that no no-contact order existed. According to Jody Walsh, Robin's sister, sometime during all this, Robin took family members to the area outside of Tony Marquez's office and informed them that if anything were to happen to her, Tony Marquez was the first guy that needed to be looked at. All in all, there would be 105 complaints filed against Robin by Marquez. The complaints ranged anywhere from reckless driving to harassment to stalking. Out of all the charges, only two of them would stick. One count of harassment by telephone and one count of reckless driving. After two days, Robin would be found not guilty on either count. On November 1st, 1989, Tony Marquez tried to seek an order of protection against Robin Abrams as well as Barbara Abrams. Unfortunately, the judge was able to see through the level of malarkey going on with Marquez, and without the two women even asking for one, 
an order of protection was granted to Robin and Barbara Abrams, and Tony Marquez was ordered to stay away from both women. With these two victories under her belt, Robin Abrams decided it was not only time to take the fight back to Marquez, but the department that had been aiding and abetting the harassment brought on by Marquez. On December 13th, 1989, Robin Abrams would file a federal lawsuit against her harassers for wrongful termination and harassment. Listed in the lawsuit was Tony Marquez, Will County Sheriff John Johnson, Deputy Chief Robert Brown, Deputy Chief Raymond Van Dyke, Deputy Anthony Lucenti, Auxiliary Deputy Charles Masica, Sergeant Thomas Carey, and Sergeant Lawrence Lawfer. All of these men were either involved in arrests or harassment towards Robin. The lawsuit would go on to specifically cite Robin's termination, despite doing good work as a full-time and auxiliary deputy, as well as graduating 10th in her class at the Training Institute as proof that the termination was malicious in nature and the result of her ending her relationship with Marquez and the fact that she was a woman. The lawsuit would continue to cite the arrests from December 1988, April 1989, and August of 1989 as additional cause for the lawsuit. The suit asked for $50,000 in compensation and $500,000 in punitive damages. Throughout the year of 1990, the first hearing in the case would be moved several times, before finally being set to occur on October 22, 1990. Ultimately, this hearing would never come to pass. Eighteen days before the hearing, on Thursday, October 4th, at approximately 4 p.m., Donald Abrams would pass his daughter on Goodenow Road in Beecher, Illinois. With everything happening with Robin, she had decided to move back in with her parents. Donald passed Robin while he was heading home, However, it was never known where Robin was heading, but it was believed by her sister Donna, who also lived in the home, that she was going to run some errands. Robin was driving her 1989 red Dodge Daytona hatchback. Reports indicate she was seen later at a gas station in Joliet, Illinois, and that Tony Marquez was also seen at the same gas station and or around the same time. Note, there still was a protection order at the time against Tony Marquez. After this, there was no word of Robin's whereabouts until several hours later, when at approximately 3 a.m. on October 5th, a resident in Harvey, Illinois, 27 miles northeast of Joliet and 30 miles straight north of Beecher, reported that a red Daytona hatchback located near 152nd Street and Harvey Avenue was being broken into. Police would arrive on scene, and after checking the car, they would discover that it belonged to Robin Abrams, the doors on the vehicle were locked, but Robin's keys and a camera that belonged to Robin were both inside the vehicle. Another resident would report that they saw the vehicle being dropped off in the area around 10 p.m. by two men in a black tow truck. At this juncture, Robin's family was contacted and Robin Abrams was officially reported missing. On Sunday, October 7th, a woman contacted the Abrams family and informed them that her father had found Robin's beige-colored clutch purse approximately three blocks from where her car was found. Robin's wallet and credit cards were missing from the purse, but her checkbook remained. On Monday, October 8th, Sheriff John Johnson handed the investigation over to the Illinois State Police on the advice of the Will County State Attorney, as it would be seen as a conflict of interest considering the pending lawsuit. From what I could find in old media, little was stated off the bat by law enforcement and what they thought may have happened to Robin. 
Most news released did hone in on the fact that Robin had filed a lawsuit against the sheriff's office and that she had previously been in a relationship with Tony Marquez. The family would start circulating flyers with Robin's picture almost immediately. An October 9, 1990 Chicago Tribune article states they were mainly passing them around the south suburbs. I would assume, but don't know for sure, that would mean Harvey and the surrounding areas that all lie directly south of Chicago, as well as the area between Harvey and Joliet. In the same article, Don Abrams would state, quote, I don't think she's ever been to Harvey, and would tell the paper he believed Robin's vehicle and purse were left there to implicate people in the neighborhood. As from what I can tell through research, Harvey was not exactly the safest area at the time. This is based on what I found online, so listeners, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Naturally, suspicion fell upon Tony Marquez, with the family believing there could be little else in the way of options. Marquez was let go from the sheriff's office in 1991 after a new sheriff took over, and even the Chicago Tribune article from October 1st, 1991, would ask if this was a missing persons case or a, quote, fatal attraction. When asked for that same article about her daughter's disappearance, Barbara Abrams would weepingly state, quote, not knowing if Robin is alive or dead really drives me crazy. I can't get through the night without waking up, worrying, thinking. Referring to 3 a.m. when Robin's car was found, she would go on to state, quote, that's when I always wake up now. All I can think of is that she doesn't deserve something like this. I want to know what happened. State police would hint in the article that they had evidence, maybe even a witness capable of identifying a suspect, but would say little else. State police captain Ed Wolf would state, quote, The likelihood that she is alive is very remote. It's not very often that people vanish for a year and then turn up alive. Around this same time, a grand jury had begun its own investigation into the disappearance of Robin Abrams and was looking to subpoena Tony Marquez and a man named John Romo. Romo was Marquez's stepbrother. And Marquez had told police he was with Romo the night of Robin's disappearance as his alibi. In the article just mentioned, there was talk of a person who could possibly identify a suspect. Around this time, Marquez and John Romo had been pointed out in a photo lineup. The man who saw Robin Abrams' vehicle being dropped off in Harvey selected photos of the two men as who he had seen driving the tow truck. While not particularly pertinent at the moment, I also want to note that the tow truck company that the witness said was labeled on the truck was an alleged mafia-owned company. That will come into play next episode, but I thought it was worth mentioning here. Going back to Marquez and Romo, the family of Robin Abrams was unaware of the two being pointed out until years later. But the grand jury may have at least caught wind of this as they issued subpoenas for hair and blood samples from the two, as well as for them to appear in person in a police lineup. An appellate court would uphold that decision, but the lawyers for the two men would push back, stating that warrants and not subpoenas should have been issued. It wouldn't be until a year later, in October of 1992, that the Illinois Supreme Court would hand down a ruling that the prosecutors needed to prove a crime was committed and have strong evidence that an individual was involved before issuing warrants or subpoenas for DNA samples or to appear in lineups. This is probably actually a bit of an oversimplification, 
but that was the way I had best understood the ruling. With this decision, the grand jury was unable to continue, and Robin's case would go quiet. In articles from the next couple years, Barbara Abrams would express frustration at the lack of leads in her daughter's case, telling the Chicago Tribune in 1994, quote, They once told me they had a witness who saw who left her car in Harvey. Now they tell me he may not be reliable. How can they say one thing one time, and now another? They won't even talk to me now. Some of them never return my calls. All I want them to do is find out what happened. Then, in 1995, there was a small glimmer of hope when a home in Joliet would be searched and the basement dug up. According to reports, the residents weren't under suspicion. And while the basement had actually been done four to six weeks prior to Robin's disappearance, Sergeant Michael Stavola would tell the press, quote, Other things are done after a foundation is laid. About four to six months prior to the dig, Ground-penetrating radar had been used on the property, and it indicated a variance under the ground. Stavola would go on to state, quote, It showed something different than the general characteristics of the ground. The search, unfortunately, turned up nothing. Barbara Abrams would continue to express her frustration, telling the press, quote, I'm still hoping that she's just hiding someplace, because that man had her really afraid. Someone is covering something up. I'm getting more bitter by the day. After the dig in Joliet, Robin's case goes silent for over 15 years. And that is where we will pick up next time. If you have any information on the disappearance of Robin Renee Abrams, please contact the Illinois State Police at 815-726-6377. Next episode, we'll discuss information that was brought to the family in 2012 and beyond that was, up until that time, unknown to anyone outside of law enforcement. Much of it leading to more questions than answers, as well as potential corruption within Will County. We'll also discuss further searches, the status of the case today, as well as potential theories. If any listeners were living in or around Will County, Illinois in the late 80s to early 90s and wish to share your thoughts on the Sheriff's Office, corruption within and rumors of Mafia Connection activity, I would love to hear from you. Not particularly looking for more info to use on the podcast, just looking for a perspective from people who were there at the time. You can email me at midwestmysteryfilespod at gmail.com, or find me on Instagram at midwestmysteryfiles, Twitter at filesmidwest, or by searching for Midwest Mystery Files on Facebook. I plan to have the next episode out by the end of next week or the very beginning of the week after. I had intended to do one long episode, but this case required a lot of triple-checking information and information hunting, and I didn't want to push a new episode out any further. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches and, more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.